Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the Coffee Theology and Jesus Podcast. It's great to have you here with us. On this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Mitch, who is the founder and CEO of Fight for Something. Fight for Something owns several different brands, and they are committed to essentially being socially and economically responsible business owners. So all of their brands that they own um, focused around giving back to the community and to making sure that that the products that they sell are as ethically sourced as possible. So Mitch came on. We talked a lot about that. We talked about his newest brand called Emiliani Coffee, which donates a dollar to nonprofits and organizations for every um, pound of uh, coffee sold and also is doing a lot of great work in making, in making sure that the uh, farmers who are growing this coffee are being paid fairly. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about how businesses can operate. We talked about the church, of course. And of course, we talked about coffee, which is kind of crazy to think that we've been a podcast for several years now and never really had a guest come on to talk about coffee and how to brew it correctly. So we had a lot of fun on this one. Hey, on a side note, I just want to say personally, I really enjoy doing these podcasts and I am so grateful that you guys listen. It means so much to us. We have some other big guests coming up. I am so excited to share them with you. So hang tight. Again, if you like this podcast, make sure to share it. It helps get the word out. And don't forget to like us um, on Instagram at CTJ Podcast. Okay, guys, check out this interview and we will talk to you soon. All right, Mitch, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. It is truly a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me today. It's fun to sit down and talk with you. Yes, always. Um, so you're in Minnesota, which is I on a side note, I'm a huge Mighty Ducks fan. Okay. So uh, Mighty yeah. Ducks, Mighty Ducks 2, Mall of America. That is my 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 kid fantasy of roller skating through the mall like they do in the opening <laughs> sequence. Quick side note. That's how you know people aren't from here is if they're super pumped about Mall of America. Nobody <laughs> here, nobody here, and I work a lot in retail and have had a store in there. Nobody here is like pumped about Mall of America. <laughs> like you go there maybe once a year and everyone else, when you have family in town, they're like, take us to Mall of America. Right. That's where I want to go. Yeah. I mean, an another one for me is a big holiday movie in our household, which is really just me because my wife hates this movie, is Jingle All the Way. Okay, another classic, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it takes place in the Mall of America. I'm like, <laughs> guys, I got to go. It's, it's like a mecca journey for me at this point to go to Mall of America. It's You do have to see it. It's cool. It's just once you live here, you're like, oh, gosh, why would I? Because once you live here, you realize, like, oh, there's like five of this exact same store in five different locations in the mall. That's why oh, you're Oh, I got gotcha. you. They, 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 they sneak you with that. Okay, fair enough. They are, they're sneaky. <laughs> I'm, in, uh, I'm in New Jersey, and they just launched almost like a Mall of America equivalent in North Jersey 
a couple of indoor theme parks, Nickelodeon's there, and um, they have an indoor uh, ski slope. So that's on my to-do list as well. But it's, um, yeah. it's launched by some of the same people. I don't know if you knew that. But Shocker. It's the, it's the same family. They only go big. <laughs> they only go big. Well, listen, it is great to have you on. Let's do this. For our um, listeners, why don't you give me the five-minute version of who you are, where you come from, and what you're doing now so we can kind of set the conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my name is Mitch Riem. I currently am the founder and CEO of Fight for Something. We are a company in Minnesota. We primarily focus on building out socially driven retail brands. Um, and I, prior to this, I just started doing this full time uh, two years ago. Prior to this, I was a pastor for six years or so. Um, and it just came to a point where you know, I was, I had two jobs that I loved really. And my time was so split that I knew that I just couldn't do either of them as well as I wanted to for two things that I loved and cared about. And so uh, two years ago, I stepped away from my job pastoring and have focused on building out fight for something and our different brands and companies we have underneath that. Um, and really it all, it all kind of started, it's seeing business used to do more than good started as kind of an obsession from just looking at my wife and I's budget and saying, you know, rejecting the idea that um, our only money that makes any impact on the world is our, you know, in some traditions, call it your tithe, call it your generosity fund, call it whatever, okay. Okay. whatever you want that, that, you know, 10, 15, 20% that's just going out the door straight to charity. I realized right. I hated the assumption that I had bought into that that was the only money that was having any impact on the world. And so I kind of got hooked on this idea of, what does it look like to give purpose and intentionality to, you know, kind of the whole pie chart of, of our spending and, and what it looks like to be generous and seek justice and whatever through all of our spending. Cause if, if 10 to 20% is where it maxes out in terms of impact, that's kind of a depressing look at our lives. Hmm, that's a good point. It does seem like, um, and this is something that I've been, my wife and I have been talking about as well is that I don't know if we realize how much money we spend to companies that really are just, you know, getting richer and they're not really doing much to affect change. So I think having right. companies that are looking to actually help, I, I think about the, the, I think the most famous one is Tom's. They start off with, you know, you buy a pair, we give a pair kind of idea. And that right. really took off because I think people are hungry for knowing that the money I'm giving to a company obviously it's taking care of the owner and the, you know, in, in the business, but you know, they, they treat their employees fairly. They're, they're helping people in need. So is that right. kind of where some of this kind of came from for you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of my biggest, frustrations right now is the fact that like we at fight for something or someone like Tom's or some of these companies that exist for any reason beyond just profit, we are considered a social business. And that's like a niche category of business. Mm. And somewhere along the way, societally, we decided that it's okay for organizations to exist for just profit. And so Fast yeah. forward to today, where social business is a niche, well, no wonder we have all sorts of problems is because somewhere along the way, we decided, you know, it's okay for 99% of organizations to exist for just profit. Um, we'll have like a couple sprinkle in a few niche companies here and there to do good. And we'll set up, you know, 501c3s and, and trust them to do good. But it's okay for all these other really big influential um, organizations to exist for just profit. And so our, our, my whole like dream behind fight for something is to see supply and demand shift to where every business has to exist for something beyond just profit. 
uh, hence fight for something. And, and it doesn't even have to be something that we, that I care about or want to want to fight for, but like everyone should fight for something. Every organization for, should fight for something beyond just profit. Well, Mitch, you know what you sound like? You sound like a godless socialist liberal who wants to redistribute <laughs> the wealth. That's what you sound like. <laughs> I, I say that though, because this, and I would like to have, have your thoughts on this um, because you've been a pastor. You've kind of been in both worlds, which is for a lot of people kind of rare because you said you were in ministry for six years, right? Yeah, at the last church. And then I worked at a parachurch ministry for a few years before that. So, yeah. Okay. So, so you've been in ministry world and you've been in, you know, now the business world. So you kind of have a foot in, in both sides. It seems like in our church culture, when you start saying certain phrases, people start thinking politically right away. Okay. Yeah. They just start assuming like, okay, this guy wants to force business, you know, as, as, you know, to, to, to spend money on things that they don't want to. Can you kind of, you know, break this down for me? Like, how do you see um, Christians impacting this? Because it does seem like there's a real disconnect here between what our culture views as, I mean, we can call it capitalism, but really it's more corporatism at this point. It's large corporations that are really, they're hoarding wealth. There's just no way around that. They're getting richer and yeah. richer. But once you critique that, especially in the church, <laughs> the political conservative police come marching in and start calling you all kinds of like slurs, like liberal and socialist. So break that down for me. Yeah, I mean, the I think part of the biggest problem we have today is there's a lack of ability for people to think in, in terms of nuance and complexity and everything yes. goes straight to the polls, right? Yes, and so, yes. so you can, someone can hear from, from me that I, am you know passionate about companies giving back right they can they can hear that alone and and you you hear that and you start going down the list of what they think that means because yes. like you're saying then it might be okay so then it's that means he's probably his tax policy looks like this and he thinks this about pro-life and this about the environment yes. and 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 it, it it happens on the other side too right like yep we just we assume that there is person A and person B and all ideologies have to follow suit. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of it's just like uh, lack of awareness. Some of it is like cancel culture playing into it. There's like mm -hmm. all these different nuances coming together that have, that are keep, that make it really challenging for all of us, myself included, to not fill in all those blanks. Right. So, and, and the church is, is, has kind of its own unique positioning within that because you know politically the church has been uh targeted by certain messaging over time and, and certain strands of the church have certain political parties have gone after and tried to tried to sort of claim ownership over the the thoughts and ideologies behind the church and and sometimes there's there's like really solid beautiful truth and grounding behind it. And sometimes there is nothing biblical or theological at all behind it. And sometimes like you can land on either side of the spectrum in a really heartfelt and thoughtful way that takes like yeah. theology and the Bible seriously. And so it's, we're in this weird spot culturally where we just, we don't have room for nuance and it's, it's brutal. Yeah, you bring up, I mean, that, that's a great point. And listen, I'll, I'll say it bluntly because it's my podcast. Eight out of 10 white evangelicals vote Republican for the past 20 years. And the conservative machine, like, like the media machine knows that. And they've attached Christian language 
to their ideology that then ropes people in to think this is Christian. When on the foundation, a lot of it, not all, but a lot of it, it's not that it's it's not Christian. It's just not, the Bible doesn't have categories for it. Like right. the Bible doesn't have a category for capitalism or socialism because those things weren't invented yet. Those systems weren't around, you know? So I find it ironic when people try and defend, well, capitalism is a God-honoring society. It's like, according to whose standard? That doesn't right. mean that it's right or wrong. It just means that like any system, it can be open to valid critique. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I appreciate that about, about it for sure. Yeah, yeah, at the very least, you know, because so many of these things aren't even addressed by scripture or whatever it should be right. at the very least it should be held really loosely if we hold some conviction around these things and so it's yes. like yeah. even like two iotas of humility would take us societally like so far to just like listen to someone who might actually have the same desire for compassion and generosity that you have and they're just coming at it from a different angle because there isn't a blueprint necessarily in scripture for what to think about taxes or, you know, whatever it may be. Right, right, exactly right. And I, listen, I don't want to belabor the point because we have a lot to get into, but you're absolutely correct because the, for some reason, our, especially our church society, it once you critique any system that is whatever, capitalism, whatever, people start thinking like, oh, like you're just not a Christian. And that's a weird correlation because it's okay to admit, okay, if Amazon is hoarding wealth during a pandemic and Jeff Bezos got you know, way richer than ever through a pandemic, maybe we should think through what that looks like and if it's right or not. But instead, right. because certain voices have already hijacked the conversation, you're either a bleeding heart liberal or you're a greedy capitalist. There's no in between, right? So I'm, right. I'm totally with you on that for sure. It's it's a it's hard to break through that conversation. It just really is. Right. And and there's there's some really interesting overlap too, I think, between especially like because we're talking about capitalism uh and the church between those two conversations and you know both of them are really under fire right now mm. in a lot of in a lot of deserved ways um mm -hmm. for just like acknowledging weaknesses and seeing over time weaknesses come to the forefront my personal bent um my kind of pushback against all the fire that comes with with both of those is i think it's way it's a lot harder to like be a part of them and fix the problem. Totally. Now, granted, some people will say like the ship just needs sunk and that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah, right. But personally, my bent is to say like, yeah, both of these do seem to, to have historically shown problems historically, like they are not perfect. They are, they are institutions made by, made by people. Um, and so what does it look like to try to redeem them and make them work better and so whether it's like young people leaving the church in droves or whether it's people like calling for total abolishment of of capitalism and what that <laughs> looks like right. like that is in an approach but my like my deep desire is i i generally think both of them can can be and should be good i mean in different capacities like this is a big broad brush for painting with trying to lump them into one conversation right definitely but, definitely but generally speaking like i think they're both really good and worth fighting for you are completely correct and that that is i call it living in the tension it's it's easy to swing to a side it's hard to live in the tension and that's where a lot of people that i know are trying to live but it seems like certain voices are really 
they're really extreme, you know, and, and, and in particular with the church conversation, you know, this podcast is dedicated to this conversation. I've spent most of my 20s and late teens having this conversation with friends and with churches, and I haven't done it well, usually. You know, I, I usually I've been the, give me the Molotov cocktail, time to burn this thing down to the ground, you know. But I realized over time that there are people in the building. So if you burn in the building, you're going you're gonna to take people with it, you know. But I found that, that if you can live in the nuance and you can admit that, yes, we have major problems, okay? The church has been guilty of pushing racism in the, in the past and even still today. We're very money hungry. There's a lot of abuses of power. The megachurch industry is a problem. However, the church can still do and still does a lot of good and it helps a lot of people. So if we can kind of do our best to, you know, be honest, but also not to be unfair, I think well, I think that would do us a lot of good. But again, it does seem like it, it, it's hard to do that. Did, did you experience a lot of the people in your church during your time in ministry kind of being on one side or the other, or was it more balanced for you? Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the church network I worked in was, is more conservative um, than I probably find myself in. And sometimes, you know, it felt really comfortable for mm -hmm. me and, and I really resonated. I loved and still love the church that I worked at, even when it felt, I mean, so I live, it's 35 minutes west of, of where I live in a little bit more um, rural. And so there's, there's just some like political demographics that are a little bit different. Right. And, and for me, even, even when there was or is attention, I still like, I love those people. And I see for me, there's such an important piece of like coming back to you, like you were talking about honesty and, and being honest about the things that the church hasn't done well, but, but also like, let's be honest about the things that the church is doing well. And, you know, a lot of people are, are finding home and faith in the church. A lot of people like historically, um, the church has also been a really, uh, key foundation in fighting racism as well. Like the altar calls began because initially it was a, not like a salvation tactic, but altar calls were born because in the South, it was part of um, a way that churches were calling people to stand against slavery. And if you mm. wanted to stand against it, it was this really public declaration of, we want you to come forward in front of your church now as witnesses that you are going to stand against it. So like, huh. and so like, has the church historically has totally been a part in, in racism, but also uh, has fought against it as well. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, like with hospitals and charity and, and there's a lot of good too. And so, yeah. so like, like with anything, like, sure. I, I totally felt tensions at times mm -hmm. pastoring in an area that was more conservative than me, but, but there, I also saw so much like beauty and good happen in that place and people come to belong and, yes. and begin a faith. And it's like, I don't think there's a perfect church out there. I don't think there's a perfect any organization out there. Yep. So anytime like I talk about the the differences that I'm or tensions I may feel with a particular church or my my particular church, it's couched in like this bigger understanding of yeah, like wherever I go, there's gonna be tensions and yep. differences. Um, yep. and that's just that's just part of it. Just like be honest, like you're saying, and see the tensions and the things that could be better, but also like be honest about the things that were good too. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to just throw the baby out with the bathwater, but just be honest. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. I find myself in a similar spot, you know, my church, I've been there for now six years and 
truly like love the people. Some of my closest friends are, are I, I do ministry with them. I, I drum with them and they're great people. And there's, there's a lot of tension always. And my lead pastor who is legit, maybe the most like authentic, legit pastors I've ever met. He is the real deal. We get coffee once a month and we've had some, some tough conversations, you know, and he's, I can tell he's a little scared sometimes. Like, you know, are you a little, you know, maybe you're a little too liberal for me, so to speak, but, 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 but we can both live in that tension and we have a great relationship and, you know, we can work through this stuff. And I feel like that's almost even though it's the most uncomfortable, it's one of the yeah. best places to be because, you know, there's this underlying assumption of like, I know we don't always see eye to eye, but the fact that we're together worshiping is the whole point of what the church is supposed to be. The church is oh, not boy. here to make you feel comfortable. It's, it's this combination of people and ideologies that come together and they submit it to the foot of the cross. So it's right. really, it's really a good thing. Um, okay. I do want to get into your business. That's why you're here. I, I don't want to, <laughs> obviously, no, it's all, it's you all tell, I love talking church, but Talk to me about, so, you know, you're, you, you're in this, you're in, uh, you're a pastor at a church and all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I think I need to leave this job that I love and take the leap into really the unknown to start this idea, fight for something, which seems like it's like an umbrella company that houses several different companies under it. So give me that journey. Yeah. Yeah. So it started off, um, I mean, started off, my wife and I are living in an apartment and and just started one retail brand, an online store. Um, And my whole goal was how do I get other small businesses to start giving and being thoughtful and create a way for consumers to start um, shopping that way and making it easier. Because I was personally getting frustrated looking around and being like, wow, I would love to buy, you know, a soap that's better for the world, but it takes 85 hours of research to find one. (laughs) And like, what does it look like to just create a more convenient, socially conscious shopping experience. Um, and it started off, you know, as five hours a week that it took me because it's just a little side hustle. We're running out of our apartment. We're doing a couple sales a week and it's, it's fine. Um, right. And then over time, uh, it just kept growing and growing and we'd get traction in one area. So today um, we have four different brands um, that fight for something owns one is Emiliani coffee is the latest one. Uh, we've got one called Northern glasses. We sell like drinkware, um, and raise money for clean water projects. That one started after I started taking, uh, teams to Haiti and just experience life without water and Mm. what that was like, and just seeing how wrong that was and just came back and was essentially like, I want to do something right. Sustainably invest in organizations like so, uh, so that was one. Another one is uh, Christmas market events that we host here, where it's similar to that initial idea of bringing businesses in, saying you can be a part of this event, but you need to give to a charity for this day and pop up. And it's kind of like a foot in the door conversation with some of these business owners um, to say, "What I'm going to show you that we can make this work together in one day of the year in building generosity into your business model." And then it kind of opens the conversation of. What would it look like to do that sustainably? Like, what would it look like to do that long-term? Okay. Um, and then we've got one other screen printing company too. So, so the, the short answer is, you know, it's, it's kind of slowly building. Those are all coming piece at a time. And eventually it just got to a point where I'm working my 40 to 50 hours a week at the church. Mm. And then, you know, initially it was five hours a week at the, at the side passion business, but right. fast forward, you know, a few years and now it's 
20 hours and then it's 25 hours and come holiday season, it's 40 at the business, 40, at the <laughs> 50 at the church, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, so it just got to a point where eventually I was like, something, something has to give because I can't give my best to either of these. And I love both of them. And so, um, yeah, about two years ago, I jumped to, to business full time. And that's, that's really our goal is to just see social business go from being a niche to a norm. Um, I would imagine that one of the hangups of a social business is that unlike a company, let's just use Amazon as an example, or Walmart that can really give the most rock bottom prices based on them buying so much in bulk and also that they're not giving money away or a lot of it anyway, you know, I would imagine that, that price wise, maybe some of your things are a little bit higher, but yeah. I would also imagine that when people find out what you're doing, they don't mind paying the premium knowing that it's going somewhere good. Is that true? Or is that not the case? Yeah. So that's like, that is the whole chip, not the whole challenge, but that's one of the biggest challenges for social business to move forward in the next 10, 15 years is um, there's all sorts of fascinating research showing that every consumer likes the idea of cause driven brands. Every right. consumer likes, but the challenge is figuring out where is that price point? You know, like how much are people willing to pay extra, quote unquote extra, really what that means is Amazon can sell things at a loss because they're floated up by all sorts of subsidies. And you know, that's a whole rabbit trail we could go down. <laughs> sure. At, at the end of the day, there's a cost to everything. And it's just a question of who and what are paying that cost. That's right. right? And so, so with like with coffee, for instance, the whole reason we launched Emiliani Coffee, the reason this like industry is fascinating to me and appealing mm. um, is because in my opinion, it's one of the most influential industries in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the few industries right now where there's actually a really clear path forward to seeing a supply chain made right. And, and so what I mean by that is like, you can get ethically sourced jeans made, right? They'll cost like, realistically, they'll cost like two, 300 bucks. Mm. Personally, I love the idea of knowing that my jeans were made ethically. Right. I can't afford that. Right. Like I just can't. Right. And my wife is a teacher. I'm a small business owner. Was <laughs> like we have never been in that stratosphere of of, right. of wealth. And yep. so, and and there's you know there's like conversations around like realistically, what is the quality you get from like low level ethically sourced jeans to premium ethically sourced ones. There's, there's an argument to be made that like, not a ton, right? Like mm. they're functionally going to do the same thing. Coffee is fascinating to me because it is one of them with the most clear uh, returns on your investment. There is a massive quality difference between commodity, you know, say Folgers coffee, commodity coffee, and like small batch, high-end ethically sourced coffee. Hmm. And, and there are more people out there who can make that jump from yes. $8 a bag to $16, $17 a bag. And there was like a tangible quality difference and it shifts the supply chain to like looking at the farming practices and saying, we can do this more sustainably than like pimping out these black and brown countries for hmm. their coffee and paying them less than it, less than it costs to uh, like, Commodity coffee often 
the farmers lose money on it because of the way the coffee industry works and there's brokers and it gets just complex. And, and so the, the way forward is to help people see like the complexities of coffee and go, wow, if, if coffee isn't just treated like a commodity and all lumped into one batch and said, you know, a coffee bean is a coffee bean dollar, you know, here's the rate traded like anything on the stock market. If instead we start looking at farms and saying, wow, what you produce is unique and special and how do we bring the best out of that? Um, we can start paying them better and more ethically and like sustainably. Um, and so there's, there's an actual path forward to seeing that supply chain made right. And it's simply help people see the difference between commodity coffee and uh, small batch coffee. And so that's kind of how I personally got pulled into the coffee industry. I'm not a coffee snob. For me, there's like the, the model, the industry of coffee is fascinating because it's one, it's one of the few that I see that there is like a tangible, here's how we do it and make things right. So I used to actually work, I worked for Starbucks for a couple of years back in the day and I worked for a small local coffee shop and I'm definitely no longer a coffee snob. I tried to be one, I couldn't do it. Um, you know, people would sit and be like, I taste lemon. I'm like, let yeah. me try. I'm like, yeah, dude, totally taste that lemon hint. You know, like just cannot do it. <laughs> I really tried. But I, I did notice that even when I was working at Starbucks, this was a long time ago now, maybe almost, wow, it's a long time ago, 10 years at least. Um, yeah. the, even they were starting to have what they would call fair trade Yep. Um, coffee. Um, and it seemed like that was kind of uh, the beginning, uh, at least that I was aware of a larger company trying to make an effort to have their coffee at least sourced more ethically that pays people a better wage. Um, so th I think that makes a lot of sense because I have heard from several people that that the pipeline for coffee has been going, it's been really having a big overhaul. A lot of companies, especially it's almost like, it's almost kind of like the craft brew. Yeah. Um, industry where it's like a lot of these like local roasteries or right. roasters have, have come have come out and said, listen, we're, we're, we're paying our supply line a fair wage. It's ethically sourced. It's organic. So is that kind of what you're seeing as well, then? Yeah, exactly. It's there's a lot of similarities, um, probably amplified on the ethical side of it. I mean, the farming practices of the brewery industry, there's a lot that could not be sustainable, um, but we see it made locally here. So some of some of the like negative sides of the supply chain are just exasperated when it comes to coffee because there is like this layer of colonialism that's played in and, and all of these things over time. And so, yeah, the, uh, with, with coffee, like it's, it's interesting the way you, you even talk about coffee snobs because I'm in, I'm in the same boat. Like we, you hear a coffee snob, coffee snobs are this unique breed of people who actually are important in, in one way for bringing the coffee community forward um, because there, there are like real differences in coffee. But the thing, the thing that, that is frustrating about coffee snobs is there are so many people who are down here spending six, seven, eight dollars a bag who feel like they're not allowed to experience good coffee because they can't talk it and because it's been made pretentious and all this. Right, right. And, and so you'd like, for for us, the way that we as a company at Emiliani want to market is, or the thing that I kind of hang my head on is I want to, I want to produce coffee that is so good that coffee snobs will love it, but we are not going to market it 
in a way that feels pretentious. Like our whole goal is to bring these $6 big people up and help them become appreciative of good coffee and the differences. And so there's this weird tension with coffee stamps of like, we need them, but we just need you to be less pretentious about it. <laughs> invite people in, don't shame them if they like cream or sugar in the coffee, like let them freaking drink their coffee how they want. So let's let's get in the coffee weeds for a few minutes. Yeah, this is a little, a little our podcast doesn't do this often, so let's have the conversation while we're here. So okay. I'm under the impression that um, there are some, you know, your coffee will taste different depending on what kind of water you use and of course how you brew it. I mean, a French press is different than a pour over, that's different than the average, you know, whatever coffee mr coffee pot so is there like i mean if you want to experience all that your coffee has to offer what would be in an ideal world not a snobbery way the best way to brew your cup of coffee in the morning yeah yeah there's there's a super snobbery snobby (laughs) trail we could go down with that um for me i really like uh and chemex if you hear this Holla at me because <laughs> let's talk. Um, but we, I really like Chemex. Um, r- at the end of the day, really with a lot of these pour over things, you're looking at really similar process. You know, it's a, some sort of a glass vessel that you're slow pouring over through. Um, the, the filters of Chemex make it really smooth. Um, that's like the one variable that that with a lot of these pour overs is different. And I really like Chemex. Wait, I'm sorry. Uh, you got to back up. I, I, I'm ashamed to say this in my podcast title is Coffee Theology and Jesus. But when you say Chemex, what, what are you referring to here? Like a certain filter type? Like what is it? So Chemex is a, is a they make glassware for pour overs primarily. Okay. Um, one of their pieces in the puzzle is the particular filter you use for the pour over. Got it. Um, I mean... There's a lot of glass vessels that that do pour overs, right? So there's like eight zillion companies making right. pour over vessels. People like Chemex's design because they're pretty, okay. whatever. There's that, but the actual filter of Chemex is is generally known as like a really good, if not the best, filter. Um, so if you want to get like super technical about it, Chemex is like a really good one. Um, okay, it's, it's what I personally use at home and like, but. But like I said, I'm not a coffee snob um, at all. I just well, kind of, I listen to all the coffee snobs and and they all generally like Chemex. And then I try it and I compare it to other things. And I'm like, yeah, that does taste better and smoother. So my problem was, so for our, um, when we got married, we got a Breville, um, like it's a, it grinds and brews fresh, like right away machine, you know? Yeah. And at first I liked it, but as time went on, I'm like, this is so much work. Like it's so much work. I have to clean it all the time. I got to empty all the time. It doesn't really brew a full, full pot. And then right. over time I sold it. I got a Mr. Coffee. I throw my pre-ground coffee in every morning. It takes 30 seconds and I have, I have coffee the whole day. So I found that for me out of convenience, I'm like, you know what? I'm over it. Like I'm over this Wait, I mean, even if I love French presses. Okay. But even that grind, if you do it right, you need a burr grinder, not a blade grinder, grind it fresh, let it steep. I'm like, I got no, I have a seven month old. I have no time for this. Right. 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 Yeah. And at the end of the day, like it is figuring out too, like, For me, I like the ritual of making a pour over, but it is slow and inefficient. And like, as a business model too, we're looking at like, is there a way and we can, 
we could open a coffee cart or coffee shop and use Chemex. And like everything about it is so inefficient. It is right. not a good use of time. I visited but. coffee shops that only do pour overs. I waited like 10 minutes, 15 yeah. minutes, because, you know, again, like you said, it's inefficient. Now the coffee was great, but in our society, especially in New Jersey, I'm not sure how it is in Minnesota, where time is and speed is way valued over anything else. Totally. You know, I don't have time to wait 15 minutes in the morning for an eight ounce pour over for 450. It's just, right. it makes no sense. Right. And that's like, I mean, that's really what it comes down to with all of these questions around social businesses is there's always this tension of holding what the consumer wants and what is quality wise best. And, and you can hit one out of the park, but you need to find this like perfect marriage between the two. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, whether it's with the speed of your coffee, because Starbucks is used to pumping them out in 15 seconds, or yeah. like it's finding this perfect balance of how do we help people be sustainable and ethically minded in the way that they shop in a way that's realistic, right? Like we're not going to take someone from zero to a hundred, you know, you're not going to go convince Joe Schmo on the street to buy the $300 pair of jeans. Right. because it's better for the world like that's just not the jump and so it's right. like okay but what does it look like to help someone be intentional with this category of their life their coffee the gifts they're buying their whatever that is and and that's really what it comes down to in in terms of like i think if people were just more intentional and thoughtful in the ways that they can that's realistic for them right. capitalism could work so much better and we wouldn't have to have as many conversations about like is this amazon thing working societally like is this right um right. but this right. is this is where we are it's because we there's convenience is a real that's a value like that's yes that's a good thing and yes. so it's just finding that intentional balance between all of the things that makes sense so let me ask you this uh, kind of a fun question here is starbucks friend or foe to the coffee industry i mean what is your take on on a company like starbucks that is oh, they're just humongous yeah it's kind of like with earlier conversations i think it would be really easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater, <laughs> right okay, yeah anyone anyone who just wants to throw starbucks out i don't think it's really fair to be honest like Starbucks has for sure elevated the coffee industry in ways that not, none of us would exist if not for them. Mm, that's true. In, in our day-to-day, -day, the way that, that we are looking at growing our business, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to look at the changes that happen because of a player the size of Starbucks. Right. Um, so like one, one thing that's I find fascinating is Starbucks, some of these big chains come along and when you're, when you're producing coffee globally, so providing it for that many customers, consistency, just like with McDonald's, any chain, consistency is the big challenge you face, right? And so mm. you, you have this problem that you have to sift through of how do we provide people a similar coffee experience globally mm. when realistically we have to farm beans from all over the world? Right, because there's not right. a farm that is going to be able to produce us. Right. And so it's fascinating to see how how because of Starbucks, like today, the people prefer a darker roast. Because with dark roasts, what happens is you kind of dull out some of the nuances and intricacies of the coffee bean. 
um, hmm. and you can make them more similar. And so if you're a Starbucks, you can take a bean from Ethiopia and you can take a bean from Mexico and you can roast them together in a way that you can make them similar. And so ah. it's, not, it's not like a right or wrong. That's like something that they have had to do for their supply chain and hopefully they're being good to farmers and mindful along the way. I can't speak to all that they are doing in that regard. Right, right. Um, but the, it's it's fascinating to just acknowledge and and give a nod to, yeah, people like dark roast today because Starbucks was smart enough to know that this is the only way that we can create consistency. And so, wow. you know, some of some of what is like for us as a micro roaster, some of right. our advantage, quote unquote, is that we can source and bring out the nuances of one farm in a way that a Starbucks just can't. We don't have to fry our beans to the moon to <laughs> right. make them all the same, right? Like we can we can play with with those notes and flavors in ways that that a big box chain just will never be able to do because mm. you can't. And so mm. it's it's not like a right or wrong, but it's it's a giving a nod to, yeah, you have you have shaped the palette of coffee drinkers across the globe. Interesting. And, and, so yeah, I, I think that whole side of things is fascinating the way that they have literally like formed the palette and preference of coffee out of necessity. They've also found a way to get a lot of money out of people for drinks. I mean, I got to be honest, my wife and I went to Starbucks recently and I'm, I'm a black coffee drinker usually because yeah. I used to work there. I, I get a short coffee. It's eight ounce coffee. It's like two bucks, whatever. Yeah. Um, I have like, you know, what? I'm going to splurge. I'm going to get myself a white mocha. She got a grande mocha. I got a grande white mocha. Ten dollars yeah. and twenty four cents. I my jaw hit the floor. I'm like, that is two full meals from McDonald's. I mean, right. that, that ten bucks. That's a that's like half a tank of gas. Totally. I am. I know. I, I it's, it's shocking to me because I, I keep thinking like, what are their ingredients? You know, it's it's espresso, it's milk, and it's whipped cream. Like they're I, I can't imagine their overhead being a ton, but yet right. they're able to convince people to spend six bucks on a latte. Right. Mind blowing. Because right. there's a cost to everything. And, and really so much of what you are paying for is the convenience. They have nailed it on the convenience level and the consistency. Mm. And so it's it's yeah, it's crazy. That is that is a normal thing now. Ten dollars for two cups of coffee. It's it's amazing. So I, I want to talk about, about your coffee company before, before I let you go here. So you started, it's Emiliani Coffee. Do you guys have like an actual, is it like a retail location? Are you online only? How does that work? Right now we are all online. And then here in Minnesota, where we are, we do pop-up locations where we'll, you know, there's an event happening and we'll sell coffee or just our beans at it, but we're primarily online right now. Um, so yeah. So um, how do you source your coffee? Like maybe give us kind of the big picture overview because I have heard that really most of our coffee comes from a very like pretty concentrated region comparatively. Um, how does it work? Like do you just reach out to a coffee farmer in Ethiopia and they send you coffee? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so we, we primarily right now lean on, you were talking about fair trade certification earlier. Yeah. Um, we primarily lean on that. It's not, you know, some people get super up in arms about like, it's not the silver bullet. For us, we don't look at it as the silver bullet, but we think it's something. Right? Sure, and sure. So for us, the two things that we lean on are fair trade certification and all of our coffees are also organic. Um, and some people ask, what's the deal with the organic? Like, doesn't everything get cooked out? 
yeah, for us, there's nothing about like the crunchy granola side of organic with our coffee that we're like trying to sell people on. For us, organic is valuable because the coffee is actually one of the most chemically intensive crops in the world. Oh. Um, and the only people it really affects are the farmers who are actually harvesting it with all the herbicides and pesticides. And so for us, we view organic as kind of an added layer of protection for them. Um, if we can support these farms that are committed to being more chemical free, we right. know that wasn't harvested with someone breathing in hmm. all, of, all of this stuff. And so currently we are um, leaning on those two certifications, organic and fair trade kind of working together. You know, there's other models that we're always exploring. Sure. Um, there's direct trade going and, and, and getting to know the farmers. We had a, we had a scheduled, uh, we were working on going to some of these farms and really personally getting to know them more. Mm. Uh, COVID happened and that kind yeah. of delays some things. Sure. Um, but that's, I mean, long-term, we would love to, love to personally know every farmer and that's kind of the direction we want to go. But that's cool. There's, there's scalability and, and right. how to, how to figure that out. And so, yeah, right now we're at, um, those are kind of our two things that we lean on always looking and, and exploring other ways to just ensure that people are being treated right along the process. And, um, yeah, that's good. So explain to me then explain to us. So, um, what is the social part of, of this company? So I buy a pound of your coffee, whatever it costs, let's say it costs 15 bucks. And then yep. you get that money. And so where does this social aspect come in for you guys? Like, what are you passionate about with this? Yeah, so it's kind of twofold. The The behind the scenes one is what we've been talking about the whole time in the, the seeing the supply chain of coffee made more right and sustainable. Right. And, but then the kind of more outward facing one that you'll see as soon as you kind of meet our brand um, is fighting for kids in the foster care and adoption organization. Love that. Um, so we... Our company, Emiliani Coffee, it's named after uh, more people know him as Saint Jerome. Jerome Emiliani is his ah, last name. okay. And he's this kind of eccentric figure from the 15th century who is um, basically at age 15, runs away from home after his dad dies, joins the army, and he has this kind of religious experience with God, where he says he's captured at war, and he says, "God, if you get me out of here, I will give my life in service to you." Um, and he does end up getting out of this prisoner of war camp. What that kind of religious experience leads him into is he spends the rest of his life um, largely looking after the forgotten and overlooked. Primarily what that looked like was abandoned children. Today, he's, he's the patron saint of abandoned children for my Catholic friends out there. Mm. Um, and so he did a lot of other cool things starting, uh, you know, so he started a couple orphanages, was kind of known for, for taking care of kids, but also started some hospitals. He ends up losing his life caring for people who got uh, the plague because wow. no one else would care for them. He's like, they're forgotten and overlooked. I'm going to care for them. And so that's kind of the, the spirit behind the stories we're wanting to celebrate and the organizations we're wanting to invest in. So we invest a dollar from every bag into foster care and adoption organizations. And then we kind of a, a fun side tangent to that is with every roast we come out with, we like to look for, for kind of average quote unquote everyday people who embody that same spirit 
of St. Jerome. And so we're looking for stories out there of people who are fighting for kids with their life in some way. And so each roast gets dedicated to, you know, we've got one woman here in Minneapolis named Aviva. There's a woman in uh, Illinois named Angela, a teacher, and just people just like you and I who mm-hmm. have lived a life of love on behalf of kids in some way. Um, those kind of stories and that spirit that we saw in Jerome are kind of what we hope our coffee company embodies as well. I really love that because um, I've heard the statistic. I'm not sure if it's fully true, but I've heard from a couple of different places that if if one family from every local church adopted one kid, so not even every person in the church, just one family from every church, that yeah. the foster care system would be pretty much like eradicated, you know. I, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm sure there's some nuance to that, but I think that 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 the point stands is that is that the church has the potential to really solve some of the big crises that we look at. And while I am very uh, pro-life, you know, I obviously don't want um, kids being you know um, aborted in the womb. We do have to consider what pro-life means on a bigger level and a fuller scale. Yeah. Um, and I feel like what you guys are doing is bringing attention to the reality that like, okay, if a, if a mom has her child and this is a single mom and the child's born into poverty, what do we do with, how do we help? You know, like right. it's not just enough to say you had your baby, our job is done. There's more that needs to happen. So I appreciate that about, you know, your focus being that because it's, it's such a big need right now. Yeah. Yeah. Especially here in Minnesota, one of the organizations we're currently investing in, um, is looking at exactly the stat you just talked about. They're called the Real Hope Project hmm. um, here in Minnesota. And their whole thing is these kids in foster care, typically what gets slid across the table for prospective parents is, you know, a rap sheet. Here's, hmm. here's where these kids have messed up. And so the Real Hope Project, what they are actually out doing is connecting with churches, sharing that stat you just shared, specifically here in Minnesota, that stat is very true, hmm. um, that we could empty the foster care system if faith communities would get involved and engaged. Um, And what they're doing is they're making videos of these kids to show this is a person. Like Mm. this is a kid. Here's what's fun about them. They like football. They like cars. They are funny. They are quirky. And they, they're just helping put a human face on these statistics that we see of there's 3000 kids in foster care. There's, you know, whatever it is. And they're saying, Let's like stop and look, let us, let us as an organization just show you this is a human waiting for a forever family. And so um, we're, we are really interested in organizations like that, that like, like you are saying, um, want to help the church come alongside the church and say, this is a problem that we should feel responsibility for. And and we could be the solution to like, if we take our faith seriously and so right. whether, whether you are that family like, or you want to find a way to support that family in your church, like, what does it look like for the church to just say, this is a problem that is not responsibility of people out there, but like, yes. take ownership of it. Yes. And so, yeah, like you're saying, like this fuller, more robust idea of what it looks like to be pro-life would be really valuable in the church right now. I like the idea of what that um, that organization is doing by humanizing. You know, um, I, there's a some quote I heard somewhere that says, "You know, one death is a tragedy; a thousand is a, is a, a statistic." And it's the yeah. same kind of idea. You know, like one kid in foster right. care is a tragedy; a thousand, just it's just it's just a number. You know, and we really we dehumanize it. Not, I don't think it's intentional. It just kind of is what happens when you right. hear there are ten thousand kids in foster care. You just think, okay, there's a lot of kids, but when you see the face of just one and you see how 
how much that system and how much not having two parents or a parent has hurt them. It's right. a way more empathetic situation than just, oh yeah, there's a big problem out there. So I, I think it's really good work that, that you guys are doing with that. It's really important. Yeah. 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 It's, it's at the end of the day, it's like stories and people that move people, right? Yes. Whether it's like in Haiti experiencing and seeing poverty firsthand, like there's all sorts of tearing down we can do of any nonprofit trying to do any good, right? Like there's really totally. valid critiques of a lot of the way a lot of mission trips are done. My, there's a lot of critiques of like the way that a lot of nonprofits happen yeah. and, and run them, carry themselves. But at the end of the day, like if the hope is getting people actually caring about the problems out there, maybe bringing people to these places to experience, you know, and see that poverty is a real thing. And like you're saying, not a statistic, like, yeah, maybe the immediate impact of someone coming down isn't the best use of money dollar for dollar. But what if over a lifetime, someone comes down there and sees, okay, this is messed up. Right. And like, I am going to start caring about this because I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota and have privilege. And I'm just going to like acknowledge right. that, that, that my neighbors a few miles away don't have water or don't have, you know, whatever the thing is. Like, what if we start looking at how do we get people to just see people rather than like you're saying statistics. So that's a great, that's a great quote. I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard it put that way before. Yeah. Well, listen, on that note, Mitch, I mean, it has been really great having you here. We've, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground, which I love. I love these kinds of interviews. Um, why don't you just go ahead and plug everything that you guys do, all your Instagram accounts, websites, go for it. And we'll put it in the show notes as well. But why don't you tell us where we can find you, how we, you know, where we could buy your coffee from, all that good stuff. Yeah. If you want to learn about our parent company, you can head to fightforsomething.com. Um, for Emiliani Coffee, it's also EmilianiCoffee.com. I'll give you the link for that. To, it's right. not the uh, most intuitive word to hear and spell out. Um, and for, for any of your listeners who want to uh, get some, we'd love to do like a discount for them too, if anyone's Oh, interested. great. So awesome. Why don't we, uh, we'll use a discount code. Uh, what do you, you tell me what to make the discount code and we'll make it happen. Let's do it at CTJ Podcast. CTJ podcast. Wow. Cool. We're so official. This is, I've hit the big time. <laughs> I'm like one of those guys on, on, you know, on radio, just put in my last name in the checkout for 20% off your order. We've done it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We'll, we'll do a, we'll throw a discount on there. CTC. I'm writing this down. So I don't forget CTJ podcast. That's, that's it. Total give people 15% off. So I love it. Oh, Mitch, that's awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on. Truly a pleasure. I, the work you're doing is invaluable. So keep it up. It's great stuff. Thank you. You as well. So great to talk to you, Tim. Thanks for checking out the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.